Dumelang Avusheni and hello hi I'm Sanzi. Nolu Tandongakani here and welcome back to Sisters Without Shame, a no holds barred podcast that is proudly brought to you by Healthform Zanzi. I'm here to walk through your shame with you as you seek answers to those scary questions you are too scared to ask about in public. I've got you through all your medical and mental health uncertainties. Drug and alcohol abuse take their toll on thousands of South Africans every day. But no matter how hopeless the situation seems, it is never too late to turn things around by seeking help. This week, we are joined by media personality Samantha Lehoko, who shares some insights into her journey of sobriety after battling addiction. Through the 12-step program, Sam was able to turn her life around. In her journey, Towards making amends, she also landed a directorship position at the NPO Rise Against Domestic Violence. Rise Against Domestic Violence, which was founded by survivor Zen Williams. Sam shares her journey of giving back through the organization. How long have you been sober and what was your turning point? What was it that prompted you to decide to embark on your journey towards sobriety? I've been clean and sober for just over two years. You know, I probably started drinking from a very early age, but I think coming into this industry, television and radio, I, you know, didn't really know myself. I didn't have any boundaries. I was very new to this industry. I didn't really know much about the culture in Johannesburg. So it was really just me jumping on the bandwagon and following suit. When you don't know who you are, you're not able to articulate what serves you and what doesn't serve you. So for a long time, I was exposed to, of course, an industry that I didn't know very well. And I think just as a coping mechanism, I turned to substances and alcohol. I think to fast forward, when I lost my dad on the 26th of Jan 2020, that for me was perhaps when I hit my rock bottom. But it took 11 months for me to actually come out of the denial So 11 months after my father passed away, I stopped and took a good look at myself in the mirror. And I said, I actually don't like who I am. And it's not so much about the alcohol and the substances. It's actually about the behavior, the behavior, the emotional instability, how we respond to things, you know, under the influence. And that was probably just my turning point because even the grieving process wasn't even a process. I wasn't feeling, I was basically just numbing how I felt, what I thought, how I presented myself to the world. If anything, this journey that I've embarked on has been life-changing, just from a mind, body, and spirit perspective. And I often say to people, you should actually think of those three things as a triangle, where mind is on one side, body is on another side, and spirit is at the bottom. So this journey that I've embarked on is yes, to obviously put down the drink and the drug, but most predominantly to regulate how I feel, what I think, and what's happening inside of me. So it's really just been about cultivating a positive mindset, cultivating a sort of culture of recovery, and focusing on on what's really important in my life. Grief is a very complex, and especially Black grief, I feel, because like you, you have no room. It feels almost as if you don't have any room to grieve. The death happens, time to go yeah. down, get over it. Yeah, I- That process has really opened up my eyes to how different people grieve. 
amongst my siblings and I, there's four of us, and we've all grieved so differently. It's really just to hold space for one another, to show compassion, to allow people to heal the way in which they'd like to heal. Because my process could possibly be to just get on with life. That's how I deal. Whereas with a brother of mine, it could be totally different. Maybe therapy is involved. I don't know. But if anything, it's an ongoing process. It's been two years, but I'm still grieving. But what I've had to do is actually take the time to grieve, as opposed to saying, well, I'm a mother, I'm a businesswoman, I'm this, that, and the other, let's just get on with it. Because we tend to forget that these feelings and emotions can creep up on us at any moment. Rather deal with it than just let it linger and manifest. Can you take us through the treatment journey, just an example for somebody else who might also be struggling? What was the process that you went through? For people who struggle with substances and alcohol, there are a number of ways to get clean and sober. Some people turn to religion. Others go to rehab. Some use a 12-step program, and that's pretty much what I use. I use the 12-step program of Narcotics Anonymous, and it really does work. Everything requires effort. Getting out of bed takes effort. Brushing your teeth takes effort. And so does your recovery and your program. So the 12-step program is really quite basic. It's a simple program for complex people like myself. There are five pillars, namely finding yourself a sponsor, somebody who can take you through the step work. The step work is, of course, your second pillar. Pillar number three would be meetings, to get to as many meetings as possible. Yes, you sit in a circle with a bunch of addicts and alcoholics, but it's a, it's a safe space where no matter what you're going through, or what you're feeling, you're welcome. The fourth pillar, I would say, is higher power. I struggled with the higher power for a very long time, not because I didn't believe in a God, but because I was exposed to so many different religions. I've got Christian family. I've got Islamic family. I grew up in a very liberal home where no matter who you are, what you do and what you believe in, it is accepted. I've really had to work on my spirituality, find a God of my own understanding and connect with that higher power. Because, of course, I am not greater than my addiction, so to speak. The addiction is greater than me. So what can I believe in that is greater than all of these things? Power greater than myself, a loving God, a God that is understanding and kind and compassionate and wise and all those beautiful things. And then pillar number five would have to be service, you know, and those five things is really what has kept me clean. sticking to the program, doing the right things, taking all the necessary suggestions. And like I said, it might not be the only answer, but it's been my answer over the past two years. Years ago, when I was in the ICU for about seven days, I was introduced to this program, but all I had was the meetings. I didn't work a thorough program. So of course, if you don't have that balance of those five pillars, of course, you're going to relapse. Of course, you're going to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. That's the definition of insanity, right? It's not really so much about putting down the drug and the drink. It's really just about getting to know who I am, looking at my blocks and assets, of course, everybody wants to look at the good things. Oh, you're smart, you're funny, you're this, that, and the other. But nobody wants to take a good look at their defects. And what substances and alcohol does is it alters your mind in such a way that you become belligerent, you become aggressive, you become dishonest, you become manipulative, you become condescending, you become derogatory. And those are just a few of the character defects that came up for me in my journey of self-discovery and healing and also getting clean and sober. I had to basically say, well, if I've been behaving in a particular way for all these years, why don't I just do the opposite? And that's actually what it is. If you 
are presented with a situation where you should tell the truth, you lie. That's what I was doing. So the work that I had to do was to say, in this situation where I could have actually been entitled and I was entitled for a long time, let me choose to be humble. In this situation where I was unkind, let me choose to be kind. And these are the choices that we think we don't have, but we actually do. The recovery process is firstly about saying, I need help receiving that gift of desperation and saying, I have a desire to get clean. I have a desire to get sober and to reach out to help and say, is it a 12-step program that's going to work for me? Or do I need to go to rehab? There are people I know in this program who went to rehab 18 times before they got clean. So the fact of the matter is nobody can tell you that it's your time to get clean. You have to come to that realization that I need help and I need recovery. People who are sectioned to rehab or people who are forced to rehab by their friends and family don't stay clean. And there's a reason for that. So in the 12-step in the program, we say we can't carry the addict. We can only carry the message. And it's actually through hearing stories from one another that we stay clean and we're more inspired and we are given more courage to do the necessary work in our own lives. These are things that you never know, you know. You just make assumptions and you say like, no, get the addict to the rehab and then that's over with. But like it's such a long and intense process. And I'm happy that mm. you got sober and you are helping another person who could possibly be listening right now. <laughs> Let's talk about Rise Against Domestic Violence South Africa. What mm. is the inspiration behind the organization and how did it start? Earlier I mentioned this whole concept of service. And, you know, I'm hoping that we can touch on it towards the end of this interview. I come from a, a very political family. Both my parents did a lot for this country. They, you know, were struggle stalwarts, so to speak, both incarcerated and fought for the freedom of this country. And I think in hindsight now, I kind of see that I also have the service bug in me where I want to give back as much as possible and that it's no longer about my very selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed attitude. It's not always about me. So I really wanted to get involved as much as possible. And the service that started for me was initially within the NA program where I was helping other still suffering addicts, et cetera. And it inspired me to also become a certified life coach and do some PRS training. I came across Rise Against Domestic Violence just over a year ago, around this time. I think if anything, gender-based violence is a pandemic. It's not just a national pandemic. I think it's a global issue. And I was really inspired by Zen Williams. She's the founder of this organization. And it was through her own story, her own trials and tribulations, that she started this organization. Her story might be very different to others, but her intention was to create a platform for all victims of abuse, whether it's emotional, psychological, financial, or even physical abuse. What I loved about the organization is that she was saying, let us not just help women, let's help men as well. Because GBV has no gender. It has no race either. So I reached out to the organization. I was a volunteer and I helped a number of members, particularly through the festive season. Very quickly, I became a director of the organization. For me, titles are not important. You know, I don't walk around with a badge saying, oh, I'm a director. But for me, what I really am passionate about is ethics. I like to work with people who are quite ethical, people who have high moral standings, people who take rapport very seriously and who don't give up because, of course, this is a fight that seems like it's going on forever. So Zen Williams started the organization and she's been doing incredible work since inception. 
what particularly stands out for me is also the for fighting against you know victims who are men as well because we don't we kind of shrug it off but it's a real thing like doesn't have a gender can you tell us about what are some of the services that the organization offers just to paint a picture for you everything is done online through whatsapp we have a women's support group a men's support group an admin group for all of our volunteers and we have a legal group the women's support group is really for the female members so to speak so they join the organization they come into the space it's really a group to share and vent and to i suppose express yourself this happens on a daily where women are sharing about what they're going through the emotions that they're experiencing you know challenges at home etc and what's incredible is that you find other members supporting these members and vice versa but it's also a room for volunteers to step in and to show support to hold the space to share resources etc the men's support group exactly the same copy and paste you know and what we're finding is that more and more men are coming forward and talking about abuse that they're having to endure the legal group i think is phenomenal and we are very pedantic about this group of course there has to be many rules and regulations you can't just come and share document we don't do that but what it really is is for our legal volunteers whether it's advocates magistrates etc to come and share their legal opinion on certain things so we don't represent members but we answer any questions pertaining to maintenance court orders divorce parenting plans etc there's a number of questions that come through which our legal volunteers then answer and ultimately prepare members for court so we don't go with them to court we don't represent them but we make sure that all their affairs are in order and these are questions that pertain to even financial issues as well the maintenance what am i entitled to how does this work uh, what do i need for court how do i do the protection order how do i take out the protection order you know what is an interim protection order we don't just answer questions it's a very educational insightful process we're not a hotline we don't run for 24 hours but our volunteers are available throughout the day and then in the evening from about 5 till 8 o'clock so like i said everybody has a phone everybody can communicate via whatsapp we communicate through texts voice notes and phone calls what i will say is that our volunteers are incredible and they all come with their own particular set of expertise so we have social workers we have psychologists we have psychology students we have people like myself who are certified life coaches and it is really a plethora of skills and expertise which we are able to then outsource to our various members and our volunteers if they wish can engage with members in the group but they can also have one-on-one sessions with members as well life coaching i must say is very difficult in this space because life coaching deals with your present and your future whereas many of these members first need to work on their past so they need a lot of therapy they need a lot of counseling they need to take themselves through a very cathartic therapeutic process before they are strong enough to say right i'm done i've moved away from this toxic relationship i've gotten my divorce i'm safe i'm fine i'm ready to pursue my career and stand tall so i suppose i come in at the end you know afterwards <laughs> i don't do the hard work that's the work that matters <laughs> what's your trajectory <laughs> and then you know i feel like oh this narrative actually was be all the time but people always asking abuse victims why don't you just leave him or her 
What are what are some of the struggles that make it difficult for victims of domestic violence to come forward and report abuse and violence in their relationship? You know, over the past couple of years, I've worked with a number of members, members who I still communicate with today. And in that moment, they are ready to leave. But something inside tells them that they can't because of perhaps financial constraints. You find that many of these women have left their jobs, they've left their careers, they are housewives or, you know, stay-at-home moms, and they basically have nothing. And they ask themselves, how am I going to make it out there if I don't have this man? So from a financial perspective, they're kind of torn between leaving and staying, leaving and staying. What am I going to do? Many of them also believe that they shouldn't leave because they want to create this facade of living in a happy home where both parents are together for the sake of the children. So again, they're quite torn between should I stay, should I leave? Can we make this work for the sake of our children? Others, they have also been, I suppose it's also a a comfort thing that many people, this is all they know. This is the only treatment that they've sort of become accustomed to. So they don't know anything else. They don't know that there is a better life out there. They don't know that they can perhaps prosper outside of this. So there are a number of factors. Lastly, one thing that I will also say is that many of them think that love is enough. I want to leave this marriage. I want to leave this relationship, but I love this man. It's the financial aspect. It's the thing about love. It's the fear of the unknown, the comfort levels. And it sounds bizarre, but, you know, just feeling comfortable in that space and feeling normal about how they're being treated. And the other thing is that it's also a mentality thing where people are so set on who they are and who they are stems from what they've been told. So if you have a partner who perhaps is very emotionally abusive and verbally abusive saying, You're not good enough. You'll never make it without me. You're nothing without me and all those things. It's what is now embedded in their mind. And they end up believing that, that yes, of course, I won't be anything without this man. So the work that we try and do is not only create that safe space, but to encourage women to affirm themselves. We encourage the men as well. We encourage everybody in the organization to empower each other and to also bring past members or past victims back as volunteers. And that is actually what happens. Because what I've said to, and this was my idea, I'm going to own it, is that as a member, once you have built resilience, once you have left this abusive relationship, etc., you need to take yourself out of the organization. Because why would you want to be in a chat group where everybody is still talking about where they're at now and they haven't made any progress? So we need to move you to a different space where the conversations are different, more empowering, more positive, more motivating, so that it can gear you and kickstart the next chapter of your life. The reasons vary. People, and I don't know if it's also a thing of exposure, what do you need to see or what do you need to hear that can convince you that there is other opportunities out there? And to take it back to the 12-step program, they say, we will love you until you learn to love yourself. And it's copy-paste. I mean, we do that here. We will love you. We will hold the space for you. We will encourage you. We will push you until you are strong enough and courageous enough to do that on your own. It sounds like a very beautiful network or community, actually, where you, you only elevate. 100%. Love to maybe at the end share about what this experience has taught me, because I used to be a very impatient individual. A lot of these women, there are certain things that they want to hear. They want 
you to tell them certain things. And when they don't get it from a particular volunteer, they go to another volunteer. And then that volunteer doesn't say what they want to hear. They go to another one. So we do have challenges where, you know, members, and you don't have to write about this or whatever, but where members, I don't want to say take advantage of resources, but where they're so invested in one particular thing that like they're sort of narrow-minded where they don't see anything else. And we're not here to be nasty. We're not here to push anybody. We're not here to put anybody under pressure. But what we're here to do is to be realistic, to say, what is your challenge? Okay, these are your possibilities. You make the decision and we will guide you and we will support you in whichever possible way. But of course, we're not encouraging people to stay in the toxicity. We're not encouraging people to just not do anything. But it is a process because at some point we have to forgive We have to learn to forgive. We have to learn to accept our past. We have to learn to move forward in such a way where we have accepted the things we cannot change and have the courage to change the things we can. Accountability is the word of the year. It is very easy for people to point fingers. It is very easy to say that you did this to me and you said this and you didn't show up when you were meant to, etc. But part of Being in a relationship is also looking at the other factor, which is you. What was the role that I played in this relationship? And that is how I engage going forward. I need to make sure that my side of the street is clean. So as much as it's nice to point fingers and hold those resentments, we need to look at self and say, yeah, but I wasn't responsible. I didn't show accountability. I wasn't honest. You know, I wasn't a good mother. I didn't show up when I was supposed to. And now the opportunity that we're giving you is to rectify those things. So make the decision, decide what it is that you want to do. But then we need to hold you accountable and you need to also hold yourself accountable for your next chapter. We can only but hold your hand. And then Sam, just the last question, you know, since it's December and people are now going home and it's the holidays, it's festive times. Say now you have decided like you're going on the sober journey. How should you respond? When you become the sober friend in the group and people like turn their noses up and they're like, no, you not drink no more. But how do you respond to the criticism or like the backlash that you get from Mm. the who just cannot believe that you are not that party girl anymore? More people need to be educated on the disease of addiction. You know, what we say is one is too many and a thousand never enough. So people don't understand that as an addict or an alcoholic, you can't just have one drink or one drug. For me, it's pretty simple. If I'm surrounded by people who are going to put me under pressure and force me to drink, then I'm clearly hanging around the wrong people. I'm associating myself with the wrong crowd. And my journey in recovery has been one of making very tough decisions, you know, where I've had to let go of a lot of people, places and things. Can't hang around the same people, can't hang around at the same spots and can't do the same things that I was doing when I was still drinking. So I'm very grateful for the fact that I have people in my life who many of them are also in recovery, people in my life who are very supportive of this decision I've made. You know, it was a decision I had to make, a decision that wasn't easy and a decision that I probably have to surrender to every day. I work a Just For Today program. So I'm literally taking it one day at a time. How can I get through this day, just this day, not tomorrow or next week, without picking up? And there are tools. And this is one of the things that we do at Rise Against Domestic Violence is we're saying, let us equip you with the correct tools so that you can flourish, so that you don't become resentful or impulsive. And if somebody says, can I order you a drink? Or, you know, somebody sends a tequila over to my table. I say, no, thank you. 
You know, if somebody says, why? A friend of mine once said, no, she's on a diet. That's why she can't drink. I said, no, I'm not <laughs> on a diet. I simply say that I just can't. I, I can't drink. And the reality is, is that for people who are perhaps struggling with substances, there is no way that you can just cut out the substances and only drink alcohol. Because the alcohol, not only is that in itself a drug, but it leads to everything else. And you'll find that even within the organization, a lot of our members are exposed to that kind of stuff, whether it's prescription medication or substances or alcohol, et cetera. And we need to not tell them not to do it, but to ask them to reflect on where they're at and why they're doing what they're doing. So I think the long and short of it all is if anybody asks me and they persist and try and persuade, I need to look at myself and say, you're not around the right people. So again, look at your, your surroundings, your people, places, and things. Do you have people who are supportive of you, who are walking this journey with you and respect the decision that you've made? And I'm at a point, thank goodness, where I'm able to sit comfortably around people who do drink and they respect that boundary. So I think that's another thing that we need to look at is boundaries. What are your negotiables? What are your non-negotiables? What serves you and what doesn't serve you? And those questions are only answered once you've gotten to know yourself. And getting to know yourself is like peeling the onion and getting to the core of what that onion really is. And I believe that, you know, we've all done some horrific things in our lives, but underneath all of that pain and trauma and toxicity and shame and guilt and regret and all that stuff, there is some purity. And I think my wish for everybody is to really unearth that purity for themselves so that they can be better productive members of society and just beautiful people for their children. I had a message from the founder that I thought I'd maybe share with everybody, you know, that nobody's coming to save us. The sooner we realize this, the quicker we can reach out for help. And by help, she means through organizations and support groups. There is recovery after abuse. It is a process. Take your time to heal. Cut off negative people. Protect your mind, body, and spirit. We should also remember, even myself as a recovering addict and alcoholic, I need to remember that recovery will happen with self-care, boundaries, those boundaries that I spoke about, and support. And it's support from people who share similar experiences. You're only going to get clean and sober if you surround yourself with other people in recovery, sharing that pain, sharing that trauma, sharing that, I suppose, hurt or whatever the case is, and rising together. And that's the whole point of this organization is we're not here to just sit like we're on the beach. We're really here to rise above everything that we've had to endure, but also to move forward, to share with everybody the serenity prayer, which I share and I say on a daily basis, often three to four times a day, where it says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So put your past behind you, focus on your present, look at the things you can and cannot change. That's the formula. Not the formula to success, but the formula to a little bit of relief from the world. Because from a political point of view, from an economic point of view, from a cultural point of view, from a load shedding point of view, from a COVID pandemic point of view, there's a lot going on. So what we need to do is to find some sort of serenity in and amongst all of this chaos. Put yourself first. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Sisters Without Shame, Sam. If you want to read more about Sam's journey towards sobriety and her work with Rise Against Domestic Violence, visit healthformzanzi.co.za. And dear friends, if you are in a medical bind and looking for a shoulder to cry on, 
you can send an email to hello at healthformzanzi.co.za. Alternatively, you can send a WhatsApp to 063-633-0628. I would never blue tick you, babes. Mzanzi, at least 15% of South African citizens are said to have a drug or alcohol problem, according to the country's Central Drug Authority. Like Sam said, recovery is a lifelong process. There is no wrong or right way to approach the 12 steps as the participant tries to figure out what works best for their individual needs. That brings us to the end of episode 72 of Sisters Without Shame, proudly brought to you by Healthform Zanzi. From me, Nolutando Ngakani, have a great week and remember to show your girl some love by sharing this podcast with a friend.